Good morning, good afternoon, good evening wherever you are in the world. This is Grant Cameron and I'm going to do a presentation today about a message from my dead mother and a disclosure message from the intelligence. Uh, before I start, I'd like to sort of point out the difference at least the way I see it, between rational analytical thought and inspired intuitive thought. Rational analytical thought is all of us get together, uh, we all have uh, an opinion, we have 10 different opinions and we sort of weigh them and we come to a joint opinion as to what we'll all accept. I would say that vast majority of those opinions are gonna be wrong in 100 years. They're basically just people's opinions. And we can point out many, many examples. One of the most famous, I think, is that even 100 years ago today, there was a big debate between two top astronomers in the United States as to whether there was more than one galaxy or whether there was just one galaxy. And at that point, this is 1920, 1925, uh, we still had the vast majority of the people in quantum physics who believed the idea that there may only be one galaxy. Then we went to 100 billion galaxies, then it was like 200 billion galaxies, and then suddenly that changed in 2016, and suddenly the figure was 2 trillion, just changed the figure by 10 times without a blink of an eye. Now we have new theories saying that the Big Bang at 13.8 billion years, that the universe may be twice as old as that. So you can see that these ideas shift, these ideas that we, we take a look at facts and we sort of guess at what lies in between the facts that we can't understand. Inspired material anybody who's worked on it and people can talk to Gary Nolan he's worked on um, he's used uh, inspiration to get ideas and the way he describes it is that he goes through the process uh, does all the analysis then puts the question beside the bed and by the next morning or within a couple of days the answer is in his head and it's not an idea it's the answer inspired is basically something that's pulled out of the field is going to be true material. Some of the examples of uh, when this was used in, in history were the alternating motor uh, was discovered that way uh, and the two Nobel Prizes of the hologram and the laser were both discovered by um, guys who were working on problems, couldn't solve it, sat down on a park bench, were relaxing and suddenly the idea popped in their head. The other way we can look at um, the difference between rational analytical and intuitive material is that uh, rational analytical is believing. You believe based upon your best judgment as to what's going on. Uh, intuitive is knowing. So it's the difference between believing and knowing. And a lot of scientists, I believe, get it all confused. They believe they know what's going on when actually they just believe what's going on and they are actually just describing things. They are not explaining anything. None of science is, is explained. It's all basically describing this happens, this happens, this happens. Then the rational analytical mind takes a guess as to what it all means. 
Now, I wrote a book called Contact Modalities, and it, it got into the idea that there's a field. And in the field um, is where all the material is. And the, the idea of contact modalities is it's not um, getting the idea, it's getting into the field, being able to shut down the rational analytical left brain, which is causing the noise in the signal, uh, turn that down and get in the field, get the material and bring it back. And that's where these Nobel Prizes came from. So there's these, these two different methods of, 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 of getting material and the intuitive material will always be right because it is coming out of the field and the idea that there, uh, all the material is in the field. Now, I had uh, the two methods I use for intuitive thinking are one is the um, quiet the mind with a walking, um, sitting, sitting or walking where your mind sort of goes to sleep and suddenly the idea pops in your head. And the other one I've used is uh, psilocybin. I've written a book on the first 15 sessions I did. I did all high dose sessions. The reason I do the high dose sessions is that you need to uh, shut down the left side. So you, you have to go to the five, five gram, which gets you into break, breakthrough dose, where you uh, actually, uh, the, the left side is completely shut down and you pop in there and you're able to uh, bring back out whatever you can remember. Now, the problem with doing very high doses, as people will know, is that it's very hard to remember the material as it comes back out because as the left brain comes back online, the filter shuts and all that material goes away like, like a dream. Now, I have done 27 sessions now. I've gotten to learn to control it fairly well. Um, I use a very strict protocol in terms of music, in terms of headphones, in terms of um, exact, um, don't deviate from the John Hopkins uh, method that is used for uh, depression. Now, I did one, I'm not going to talk about it, I did one when my mother had died, I was, was very upset um, to the point that I was... Um, sort of spiraling down and I did a session and was completely cured. Not in, all, all the anxiety, the depression went away. So this time um, I did a session um, with the five grams and this was over uh, tremendous stomach pain that I was having. And I knew this was from basic tension, almost the same sort of thing. And so I um, went, went through the session and um, I'm going to talk about today what I brought back. Now, when I was in the session, I knew that the stuff was fading and I actually planned not to remember a lot of this. So I just said, I was so tired. I was so, uh, this is a very high emotional state. Um, I, um, I hate doing them because they're, they're very, they're very, very traumatic. They're very intense. Uh, you usually don't sleep for 24 hours after this whole thing takes place. So um, I, I thought during the session that I will, I will sort of let a lot of this go. But the stuff I saw was was very, 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 very interesting, and backed up by other types of modalities of, of people seeing stuff. 
Now, for me, it takes like a day to build up the courage to actually go through with it. Um, and it's uh, it, people have described it as being on a roller coaster. Once you you get on the roller coaster, uh, you aren't going off. And people will say, well, you should actually have a, a helper. And I always wonder why would you need a helper? Like they're not going to get you off the roller coaster if you get in trouble. Uh, the the idea is to be a big boy and realize that you um, took the bought the ticket and you you bite your lip and you uh, own up to it. And once you do that, once you surrender and and quit fighting it, then it it seems to go. Now, I made the mistake of taking this at six o'clock at night, uh, which then usually ends like 11 or 12, and then you're so wound up, you, you simply can't sleep, which is, is what happened. Now, I had the pain, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And when I took it, I actually had the stomach pains when I took it. And one of the back uh, bad things that happened is that when you take high dose, um, psilocybin you end up it can cause stomach upset so my stomach was upset already then i took the psilocybin and my stomach was really upset and i was thinking to myself uh, should i force myself to vomit and get out of this thing and uh, just sort of bear with it and then i thought again the thing about you bought the ticket um, it's going to be over in a couple of hours uh, suck it up and get moving so it was sort of much much more painful than normal going through and I actually had to wait for 45 minutes. Usually I don't eat very much before because I don't want to sit there. If you eat before you do it, then you have to wait for two hours for this to go through the system. Uh, if you don't, then you you uh, it, it's almost instantaneous effect. But this time still, I didn't really eat very much. And it was still at least 45 minutes until anything happened. Now, what I was um, going to do is like every other one, um, I was hoping that the the pain in the stomach would be would dealt with at the end, but I um, was going to follow the protocol. And the protocol is once you get in there, uh, you surrender and you basically um, go towards whatever is is you see whatever is there. You take responsibility that you may have put that there. Uh, be very curious as to what's going on. Why is this in front of me? Why is this person? Why is this evil alien? Why is this, uh, you know, devil in front of me or, or whatever the, the thing is? Be very curious. Go towards it. Don't back away. So what I was waiting for was a lot of people will describe the psychedelic colors, which basically is sort of like as you're going into it, you're going to go through this almost like a um, an area of color. And the last time I saw it, it was... Um, the one time I actually paid attention to it. And what I find is that um, when you focus on it, it just zooms right in, you zoom right in. And so I wanted to, again, get a close look at this color and, and the, the fabric and the, the, the symbols and stuff like that to uh, get in as close as I could and, 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 and see what that was all about. Because um, until the last little while, I wasn't really interested in, in the color stuff, but, um, I was sitting there waiting for the color and there absolutely was no color whatsoever. There was, there was no patterns. There was no color. I was waiting. I was waiting. I was waiting. I was ready to be focused. I was ready to be interested. And then the thing started and here's how it started. A message came and it was very clear. It said, doubt is your worst enemy. And I thought, wow. And I, <laughs> so I knew that, but 
it was uh, still really nothing happened. It was just as a sort of message. And then I was in a conversation. And uh, when I was in, it appeared to me that the conversation was back and forth for two hours. Uh, there was no symbols. Uh, there was no person. There was just a... It's going to be hard to describe. It's not, it's a, not a voice. It's like a telepathic. You think the message is right there. The answer is right there. And so what I called it was the briefing officer. Even though there was nobody there, it was the fact that whatever you wanted to ask about was there. And you <coughs> excuse me, uh, quickly get this message. So I was having this, this conversation back and forth and um, with, with no symbols. But what I um, did see, or for, first of all, let me describe what, what they were sort of describing. We had this sort of conversation back and forth, um, the idea that stress and anxiety, uh, I'm replaying things in my head too much, and that simply is why you're having the, the stomach issues. You just keep rewinding it, rewinding it, rewinding it, and sort of gave me the idea that I should uh, back off and have more of a normal life, and almost like the sort of the analogy that sort of popped up, I don't know if it came after, or during, it was the idea that the guy who sits there and watches Monday Night Football uh, may be just, you know, eating uh, Cheetos and drinking beer, but uh, he's happy. And, and the situation was I was not happy because I had this, this pain problem and uh, anxiety over, uh, you know, trying to work, work this kind of stuff out. And that there was needed more of a balance between working the things out and the uh, guy watching Monday Night Football. So this went back and forth, and I said, yeah, I knew that, and uh, the stomach pain was still there, and I thought, well, maybe it'll go away, you know, maybe it won't. And then what happened was, um, and this is the second time this has happened in a row, and this sounds pretty spectacular for people who um, don't, aren't familiar with this type of um, literature about being in the field. And that was, I suddenly knew the answer to everything in the universe. Now, people say that's absolutely insane, which is what I said when I ran across UFO people who said they knew the answer to everything. Um, this is actually very common. There's actually um, Nick Cook, who wrote uh, Hunt for Zero Point Energy, tells the story of his wife. His wife is um, at her mother's bedside. He's there. She's holding her mother's hand. And her mother dies, and uh, Nick Cook's wife gets up and says, "Oh, everything's good, everything's okay, and everything's perfect," and walks off. And he was thinking to himself, "What are you talking about? How could everything be perfect? Your mother just died." And later on, he asked her. He said, "Like, well, what did you mean? Like, how could you? How could it possibly be good? Your mother died." And she said, "Oh, why? Weren't you there?" And he said, "No. Where was I? Where was I supposed to be?" And she said, "Well, I was in this field." I was in this field where time and space had sort of disappeared. Everything was perfect. I knew the answer to everything in the universe, and I couldn't bring it back. But I, I knew everything, and everything was absolutely perfect. Now, I've done interviews with uh, people who have had this uh, same idea. I did somebody who, a friend of mine who uh, is an expert of being inside float tanks, uh, sensory deprivation. Uh, a woman who was doing regressions, a woman who had been thrown off a motorcycle face first on the concrete, had an near-death experience, 
And there's also the reference of Roland Griffith, who ran the psilocybin research at John Hopkins, has just been diagnosed with, uh, with a terminal illness. He did um, LSD, and he stated that he got this uh, message. Everything's perfect. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. Don't worry. Just go along with it. Uh, you're going to die, but everything's okay. And so th this um, is, is, is very, very common. Um, in fact, uh, there's the free survey of 4,200 um, experiencers. It was done by Edgar Mitchell and Ray Hernandez. Um, of the people who answered the question, 40% of the people say at one point during their experience they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And I think it was uh, of the people, 61% said they either knew everything about the universe or everything about themselves. 31% uh, of all people in near-death experiences say at one point during the experience they need the answer to everything in the universe. And that's what I experienced. It was there, um, and it was, um, as we would describe, as people would immediately say, well, what did it look like? And I would say what everybody else says, I don't remember. Because when you go back out, you forget it. And I knew I was going to forget it. I do remember um, the session 26 and session 27 session 26 was more like black and white it wasn't as detailed 27 was as people describe it was more real than the real world it was absolutely like having a conversation with somebody there was no dream quality there was nothing it was absolutely and what you're shown is not going to be reality it's going to be a symbolic of everything and that is because you can't really see reality. It's always going to be a, a symbol or a desktop icon in between that symbolizes what real, reality is like this. Reality is like that. And what I saw was the entire workings of how it all worked. And it was um, extremely complex. It was um, extremely detailed. Um, it was working on its own. But the thing that sort of in 26 and in 27, this is when I started to argue with this person, is it seemed very mechanical. Not that it was mechanical, but it was sort of like working on its own. And I realized that the idea that people would describe, uh, Nick Cook's wife described this, this idea of the unconditional love and everything's perfect and stuff. And that really wasn't part of 26 or 27. This, And I actually said, I said, well, okay, where's the unconditional love? So it seemed very sort of cold and mechanical. And I was met with silence. There was, there was, no, there was no answer to that question. Uh, but I was, um, I, I was extremely uh, depressed at that point. And... I remember it was like, well, what's the point of life? I mean, if this is what it is, and I knew that the the there would be the unconditional love. It's just I wasn't seeing this thing. But um, I basically uh, d sort of disputed it and 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 made this this angry statement about there's no point to anything, and uh, what's the point? And at that point, I was told, um, you're trying to shift the blame. You're the one that poked the hornet's nest. You're the one that came in here. Now you want to turn around and you want to sort of blame other people for what you're seeing. 
you chose to come in here, you chose to see this. And this was the kind of conversation, these are a few things I remember about the conversation, but I remember it appeared to me like the conversation went on for a couple of hours. It was sort of back and forth. And I know that I could ask anything I wanted, even though I really, I wasn't really interested in answers about how does this work in the world or how does that work in the world. But I know the thing was that anything that I thought was instantly answered, except for this idea about where is this unconditional love. So this briefing officer and I are, are going back and forth. Um, the, the 26, I actually, there was somebody with me. And you'll see this, I mentioned this in my book, UFO Sky Pilots. Um, once I started to get, I had 36 at the end, but it wasn't until I got to 24, 25, I suddenly realized that some people were talking about the fact that when they were on board the ship, before they were told to touch the panel, um, they had somebody behind them. They didn't know who it was. Jim Semivan talks about it having a guardian type thing going on about it. He thought it may be a reptilian or a mantid or a, a tall gray. Um, but then I started asking, I asked Whitley Streeper, said, Whitley, when you're on the ship, did you ever have um, a voice behind you that you weren't allowed to turn around and look, but there's somebody behind you that was talking or giving you um, instruction? He said, all the time. And I realized that this is kind of a, a, um, a, a principle. So that was in 26, I had that where this sort of the, something was with me this time there was nothing there was it was like me and this universe type thing and i i i argued uh quite a bit and then uh, the some for some uh, for some reason the the whole idea of um the ufos came up and i'm not sure how it got on that because the, the, the session had not, nothing to do with UFOs. I, I was going in to get rid of this stomach pain. And so I was I was there and realized that there was this component of, um, number one, consciousness in, in flying the craft, in the UFO type material, and the fact that everything is individual, which is something that I, I think I'll point out now for the first time that uh, James Lekatsky has just done a very major interview. He was the head of uh, the OSAP program, the, the government program for UFOs. And he um, basically um, talked about the fact that every UFO sighting is different. And I've argued for years now that every uh, alien is different. That they say they're grays, and then you start comparing the grays. None of them look the same. And people say, well, it's just the person drawing. No, it's not the person drawing. It, the, the, these all look different. And when I look back on the ship, it's the same thing. I have 36 people, and there's a basic underlying principle. The craft is biological. It's conscious. You touch the craft. You become one with the craft. Whatever you think is what the craft does. And it has this this component of, of connecting consciousness or triggering it with consciousness. But nobody touches the same thing. It's the same thing. It's like leaves on a tree. Every single story was different. Everybody, one person touched a panel, one person touched a ball, one person touched a, a, a panel board or like a, a panel on the side of the craft. 
Uh, some had the panel on the wall. Some sat in a chair and put their fingers in the end of a chair. They were always touching something, but nobody, it was like nobody was ever on the same ship. And that was the same idea that this is individual. So in this latest interview that James Stokatsky has done, he talked about everything works as if UAP were a product of technology that integrates physical and psychic phenomena. So somehow this conversation got going about this and what I was dealing with was not an alien. It was not God. It just, it may have been me uh, talking back to myself. Uh, but we, we had this sort of discussion and then um, it, it came to this, the end where this very profound statement was made to me. And it goes to what's going on now, this idea that uh, a craft has been recovered. Lukatsky uh, has just written, they've written this book. This has been approved by the Pentagon. Um, and the, the, the idea was that the craft of unknown origin had successfully uh, been captured or had, had, they have a craft and they had gained access to its interior. The craft was streamlined. Uh, uh, suitable for aerodynamic flight, but no intakes, exhaust, wings, control surfaces. In fact, it appeared not to have an engine, fuel tanks, or fuel. And then Lukatsky asked, how did it operate? And so this is the whole idea, this this key to consciousness. So I, I had already asked the question that nobody seems to want to deal with, is where did the craft come from? How do they get an intact craft? This has been a story. I remember John Lear telling me about this. Uh, this story has been around forever about the the craft that's that's um, intact. It's in the Wilson League document. At the very end of the Wilson League document, it says we have a we have a craft and we think it'll fly, which means we got the craft. You may have been in it, but you can't turn the thing on because it needs this consciousness interface. So they've got a craft and they and they really can't do anything with this this craft. So my question was, uh, is the whole theory of, wow, like what's really going on here? Where, um, where did this craft come from? And if you look at Bob Bigelow, who ran the OSAP uh, program as the contractor, he was asked about, and he said, I think they're seeding them. There's one in, in the United States, there's one in China, and one in Russia, and they're dropping these things all over the place, and they're seeding it. The same as Tim Taylor, who is the uh, big engineer, uh, that people will hear about in American Cosmic, where he says, do you think they come across the universe and then crash? This stuff is being given to us. And I've always questioned the metals, the little pieces of metals, that it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that a flying saucer is going to come across the galaxy and then little pieces the size of your thumbnail are going to fall off the craft. So that was part of what was in my mind. I just read this, uh, listened to this interview with Lekatsky just before I did this session. So this was on my mind. And um, particularly the idea of where did the craft come from? That everybody's talking about the craft, but nobody's actually asking the question of how did we get a craft? How, did they give us this craft? And really what's going on? And my thing, the whole deal is the theory of wow, that we are being led, we are being uh, directed. And that's where this, this sort of very famous um, line that was, was given to me um, by the um, 
by this whatever this intelligence I was dealing with. Uh, but first, let me mention one more thing that Lekatsky brings up, and that's about the men in black. And this ties into the um, the whole theory of WoW as well, that he confirms that there are men in black and that they are not there to scare people. They're there to make people um, more interested, to drag them in, which is theory of WoW. They, they're trying to get your attention. They're trying to get you interested. And they drag you in by doing stupid things, like having a, a woman in a men in black incident where she's uh, there, but her wig, she's got a wig on, but it's on sideways. Stuff like this, where it's just totally crazy stuff. And, and people are wondering, like, who are these people? It's just government people. So that's basically where this line comes from. So we were discussing this. And that's when, again, I got this message that I should go and relax. I should Take it easy. This is related to the, the craft, having the craft. I should take it easy. And then they said, we know how to land the plane. And when I heard that, I went, wow. And this is the whole deal. This, according to what I was told in this session, this is all a plan. This is all part of the, the, the way that they're going to uh, disclose Almost like Jim Semivan apparently said to um, um, John Alexander, the idea that they're running the show, that we think we're running the show. No, they're running the show. They are unraveling this thing. So there is a disclosure by the government, but the disclosure is actually being controlled by the UFOs. If the UFOs had not shown up in 1947, there would not be a need for a government disclosure. Everything that has happened is the intelligence putting things forward creating this mystery and we say we want disclosure we're trying to get it from the government we should be asking for disclosure from the intelligence it's the intelligence that's running it and what they said in this expression to me they said we know how to land the plane don't worry about us like we've got this all under control and uh, i was just floored when i had that um so i, I asked at that point and and i said well what about me i mean if this is if it would appear that i'm sort of been dragged into this for a reason and uh so what's the point i mean if, if you guys are running this thing and if it's all gonna unravel uh, like this 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 thing i was looking at where it all works automatically and it's all programmed in and stuff and what about me what how, how do i fit into this thing and then this very clear said, go slow. And that's what the idea I got was this thing has to unravel slowly. It has to unravel piece by piece and that they've got this plan. It's almost like they've done it on a thousand different planets before. And you look back and you see the Brookings study from the 1960s said the same thing. If we realize we're being visited by some sort of non-human intelligence or whatever it is, you got to go slow. You got to acclimatize people. You can't drop drop it in people's lap, because people are going to be like me. When I when I saw this and it wasn't exactly what I wanted, I was really really upset. And that's what they said to me. They said, "Take a look at yourself. Look how upset you were. Imagine if it was the guy on the street. If you drop what you're looking at now to some guy on the street who believes, you know, the world is random. It's all happening by accident." or that um, you know, there's the second coming of Jesus or uh, 101 different views that uh, they've never thought about this. 
and suddenly they realize there's this uh, intelligence that's running this and uh, they're going to be people committing suicide all over the place. That is one of the things I think that they, they realize is that you cannot um, basically um, drop it in, in people's lap. You cannot, you've got to put the um, sort of the padding on it. And the, the, the image they showed me, and they've shown me this image back, back in the early sessions. And I always thought it was something meant to scare me. And what it was, it was like a female that would come, there would be a, a, a sound of cracking of glass. And this female would come out, it was a sort of the same sort of female every time, but it was a skeleton. And it was just horrendous. It was, and it was all sort of pointy bones. It was long black hair, but it was coming out. And I'd always turn turn around and, and sort of uh, try to ignore that as it was coming. And I thought it was always because they wanted me to to scare me. And again, they showed me this image, and now it makes sense. Is that's what happens if you show people stuff without the padding? It's going to be this skeleton type thing that's going to scare the living daylights out of people. So what they do is they pad it with little tiny stories of flying saucers and little aliens, and it makes it into a little Hollywood play. And people watch the play, and they don't see the 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 the, the mechanics behind what's actually going on. The mechanics are um, not as interesting. They're more like the skeleton. And so that's what they showed. They they showed me this this uh, woman again, and then it they didn't tell me, but it just suddenly made sense. I suddenly go, oh, that's why they kept showing me this this female uh, type skeleton coming at me. Now, before I end, I would like to also talk about the fact that my dead mother showed up uh, for the second time. I've never had in my entire life any sort of encounters with. Um, dead people, never seen a ghost, never had psychic, never had uh, messages, nothing. I remember when my father died, and nothing. he told uh, my sister and my mother that his father had come. He didn't tell me. Um, I didn't see anything happening there. Uh, my father didn't come to me after he died and uh, send me a message or whatever. And when my mother died, um, I was five very tough weeks where I was at the hospital all the time. And um, I kept telling her, Mom, Mom, if you send me a message, if you if you can send me a message, and that's what made me so really depressed after uh, after this horror, horrendous way she died, and then um, nothing happened. It was like dead silence, and and I sort of almost lost my faith, where I was wondering like what's going on here, and so in session one, uh, I had gone. In 26, session 26, I had gone and I, and I to try to deal with the sort of the the angst of, of nothing happening and my, my mother being gone and stuff like that. And she showed up in, in that one and she just showed up briefly and it was her essence that showed up. It was, um, I could sense she was there. I, she, I didn't intend because I don't really recall anybody in psilocybin seeing dead people, but uh, I remember I was there and then suddenly... I, I could sense she was there and there people have an essence. I didn't realize this until after this happened. Everybody has an essence. So you can imagine your brother or sister or your mother standing beside you and you can sort of sense what they, what they feel like. And so I, that's what I got is the essence. And then I looked up and uh, then the essence was there very strong. And I said, Oh, hi mom. Thanks mom. And then I was all uh, happy. And I was saying, I'm sorry. I forgot. 
that was that session. This one, it was very bizarre. And it was one of these messages that you will see from time to time where the only person that's going to figure it out, it's intended for the person, it's intended for anybody else, it wouldn't have meant anything. So I, we're talking about uh, different things, you know, the I, I'm thinking about the UFO thing and the, the seeing everything in the universe and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden there's, it's, uh, people will have return address labels and, um, with the three lines well this is only one line and but it was like a double one line and it, it said it just suddenly appeared in my image to the left and it said lenora cameron 445 hudson street and i went what is what is going on here and i looked at it again and went lenora cameron 445 hudson street and then i suddenly went oh mom how you doing mom and then thing disappeared and this is uh, the importance of this is that nobody else would have caught on to this. My mother was very conservative. She believed that women should stay home, not get involved in uh, working and in getting into politics. They should stay home and take care of the damn kids. And my mother uh, and my father bought their house in 1959. I'm actually in the house right now. Um, and they've always had the house and she raised her three children. She never went anywhere. She was a church organist for 40 years, but she basically didn't leave the house. She raised her kids and that was her job. And so that was her, almost like her, her business card was Lenora Cameron, 445 Hudson street. So when I saw that, I thought that was very cool. And then in a few minutes or later, suddenly on the right side, down low on the right side, there was my father. And my father used to do uh, crossword puzzles, New York Times crossword puzzles. He could do them in about 10 minutes. He'd lie on his back. He'd fold up the paper. He would just, with his pen, he'd put the pen top in his mouth and he'd do the thing. And then he'd put the, um, the, the crossword puzzle down after it was over in 10 minutes. And then he would put the pen back together. And then he would grab his book and he'd, he'd start reading again. And um, suddenly there was him almost like looking up from the couch. And he said, me too. <laughs> I, I got this impression, me too. And I thought, hey, dad, how you doing? So that is the experience I had. And um, it only lasted two and a half hours. I was so worn out. Uh, what happened is in the music, the music that you're listening to, it will basically take you up and down. That's what they do. They have, you know, joyful music and, and reflective music and then sort of uh, real sort of dark music. And what happened is they went to the dark music. They had played uh, Louis Armstrong, uh, A Wonderful Life, which is usually the last song in the playlist. And they had played that already. And I was all very joyful. And all of a sudden they started doing this German classical music again. And it's very, very, uh, to me, I, I sense it to be very, very dark. And I thought, no, I'm not going there. No, I've, I'm out of here. I'm just worn out. And so after two and a half hours, only two and a half hours after I started, um, I got up and uh, that was the end of the session. And that's a very short session for um, five grams. So just to sum up, um, we have we have this situation where uh, if you hear someone say they saw they saw everything in the universe or they understood everything in the universe, uh, I've been there, I've done that. Um, it doesn't make any sense, but there are a lot, a lot of people who almost like this is more and more people all the time are having this experience of um, actually getting in the field and sort of seeing everything, which indicates that everything's in the field. And so the idea is to find an ability to get into the field 
to get the material, to access the material. It's all there for you to access and bring it out and it, it will help you. And the idea that um, there uh, is life after death, that uh, people will send messages. And uh, I will, of course, be looking very forward if I do another session. I'm not sure I will because it's it's very, very traumatic type stuff. And I really need a reason to do it. I just don't do it just for for kicks and giggles. Although I'm going to put the second um, psychedelic book out for sessions uh 16 through 27 just to record uh, my journey thanks for listening anybody has any questions it's uh, grant cameron and the address is whitehouseufo at gmail.com hope to catch you again soon just a short addition to the podcast for today I had the stomach pain. Did it go away? Yes, stomach pain went away. Thanks.